patrons heard this episode first. You can become a Patreon too by heading over to patreon.com slash the Murder Diaries pod. Patrons get to hear ad-free episodes early along with many other perks. You can also support us on Buy Me A Coffee. Head over to buymeacoffee.com slash mdiariespod. Speaking of that, thank you, Marina, for the coffees this week. We definitely needed them. You can get links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee in the show notes as well. Welcome to the Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. The case I have for you today needs your attention. Despite what you may have heard, Ellen Greenberg didn't kill herself. And her loved ones have spent more than a decade trying to prove just that. They've begged, pleaded, and fought with those in power to change Ellen's manner of death from suicide back to homicide or even undetermined so that it can continue to be investigated. In the process, they've had almost every door shut in their faces time and time again. Yet they continue to fight day in and day out. This January marked the 12th anniversary of Ellen's death. In recognition of it, the Family Run Justice for Ellen Instagram account posted a beautiful tribute to Ellen, along with an update of where they're at in their efforts. Here's part of what they had to say. While there has been no substantial updates to post in weeks, we are still hard at work in our attempts to bring justice for Ellen. Our two lawsuits are working their way through the legal system, and Ellen's case is being reviewed by a fresh set of eyes at the Chester County DA's office. In honor of Ellen and this day, we encourage you to continue to share Ellen's case. So that's what we're going to do here at the Murder Diaries. While the family remains locked in battle, we're going to tell you everything we know about Ellen, her case, and the family's years-long journey toward justice. Ellen may be gone, but she will never be forgotten. This is her story. You still think it's in my head I'm walking with the dead. It's Wednesday, January 26, 2011, and there's a blizzard in the city of Philadelphia. Because of the inclement weather, the students, staff, and faculty of Waniata Park Academy are dismissed early from school around 1, 1.30 p.m. First grade teacher Ellen Ray Greenberg is among them. And it's not long before the 27-year-old makes her way to the Venice Lofts in Maniuk, where she lives with her fiancé, Sam Goldberg. The soon-to-be-married couple spends the afternoon together in their sixth-floor apartment until Sam leaves to go to the complex's gym at 4.45 p.m. CCTV shows Sam enter the first-floor gym five minutes later at 4.50 p.m. But when the 28-year-old returns less than a half hour later, he can't get inside his home. The apartment swing bar is activated, meaning he can only open the door an inch or two before he's effectively locked out despite his best efforts. Sam repeatedly bangs on the door and calls out to Ellen from the hallway, demanding that she let him in. But she doesn't answer. In fact, there aren't any sounds coming from inside the apartment at all. Sam then calls Ellen's cell phone and that doesn't get a response either. He stands fuming in the hallway for 22 minutes, waiting for her to open the door, furiously texting her over and over. The first three texts are relatively neutral. Hello, open the door, and what are you doing? But the longer Sam stands in the hallway, the more frustrated he becomes. It's plain as day in the subsequent text messages he sent Alan. Don't take my word for it, though. Here they are as transcribed in official documents. I'm getting pissed. Hello? 
You better have an excuse. What the f***? Ah, and you have no idea. Growing more impatient as the minutes tick by, Sam decides to recruit help. He takes the elevator downstairs to the lobby where he finds the lone security guard, 67-year-old Phil Hampton. Sam fills Phil in on the situation, urging him to break the lock. Much to Sam's dismay, Phil refuses, stating it's against policy. Sam returns to his apartment door with Phil before forcing his way inside, breaking the swing bar lock in the process and coming face to face with a gruesome sight. Ellen's in the kitchen, covered in blood. She's slouched in one of the corners of her U-shaped kitchen where it appears she was cutting fruit prior to the attack. There's an orange sliced in half and a colander full of blueberries sitting undisturbed on the brown granite countertops. Her upper body rests against the lower cabinets between the sink and the stove while her legs are sprawled in front of her and her left hand clutches what the Philadelphia Inquirer describes as a pristine white towel. Somehow, amidst all of the blood on and around Ellen, there isn't a single crimson drop on the towel. Sam dials 911 at 6.31 p.m. and emergency responders and law enforcement are dispatched to the scene soon after. We were able to get the audio of Sam's phone call in its entirety, which is what we'll play right now. Help, I, I, I need, I need a, now. I just, I just walked to my apartment. My fiance's on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please come, help, 4601 now. 4601 Flat Rock Road. Is this a house or apartment? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Apartment. It's an apartment. What apartment number? <laughs> Please hurry, please. She's bleeding from. She, I don't know. I can't tell. She's. No. <laughs> so you have to calm yourself down in order to get you some help. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She. Okay. I don't know. I, I'm looking at her right now. <laughs> she. I don't. I can't see anything. She doesn't. There's nothing broken. She's bleeding. Ellie. You don't know where she's bleeding from. Can't tell where the blood's coming from. It's. I think her head. I think she hit her head. I think. I think she but might it's all everywhere. Okay, it's everywhere. She might have fallen. Do you know yeah. what happened? She, she, she may have slipped his blood on the on the table. Her, her face is a little purple. Okay, hold on for rescue for her. Stay on the phone. Philadelphia Fire Department 842, what's the address? No, 4601 Flat Rock Road, please hurry. 4601 Flat Rock? Yes. What's wrong? My, my, I just, my, I went downstairs to go work out. I came back up. The door was latched. My fiance's inside. She wasn't, she wasn't answering. So after about a half hour, I decided to break it down. I see her now just on the floor with blood. She's not, she's not responding. Okay, is she breathing? She, I Look at her chest. I need you to calm down, and I need you to look at her chest. It's really. I don't think she. I really don't think she is. Listen to me. Someone's on the way. Look at her chest. Is she flat on her back? She's on her back. Do I bring her? Look at her chest and tell me if it's going up and down, up and down. I don't see her moving. Okay. Do you know how to do CPR? I don't. Okay. I can tell you what to do. Okay. Until they get there, I want you to keep her. Oh God. Hello. Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone until they get I, get, I, I have to, right? Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. 
listened to the full conversation between Sam and the dispatcher, one could see why there's been a lot of speculation about Sam's involvement. His choice of words and overall demeanor seem off. We're not the only ones that feel that way, especially knowing now everything involved in Ellen's case. Look, we of course need to acknowledge that none of us can know or predict how we'd respond if we found ourselves in a situation like this. However, it's true. There are plenty of people, friends, family, and internet sleuths alike, who question the authenticity of Sam's reactions, insisting they reek of dishonesty and come across rehearsed. Perhaps the two most criticized moments are one, when Sam's instructed to start CPR and just then notices the 10-inch serrated knife sticking out of Ellen's chest. And two, when he tells the operator that Ellen, quote, stabbed herself. EMS arrives on scene within minutes and... Ellen is pronounced dead at 6.40 p.m. The entirety of the attack seems to have been isolated to the part of the kitchen where Ellen was found, with Homicide Sergeant Tim Cooney calling the rest of the apartment pretty unremarkable in terms of evidence. The apartment is then cordoned off for investigators to piece together a theory of what they suspect may have happened. And it's not long before they're treating Ellen's death as a suicide, even though a suicide note was never found and Ellen not once outwardly displayed signs of wanting to harm herself. 
Sergeant Cooney explains the decision, saying there was no indication of an intruder or that Ellen attempted to escape an attacker. He looks at the lack of physical evidence to support this claim, highlighting the fact that the only two possible entry points, the front door and the balcony, were locked from the inside. Remember, the front door was latched upon Sam's return from the gym. As for the extremely narrow balcony, which, by the way, is literally impossible to sit or stand on, it was also locked and covered in undisturbed snow. The sergeant then points to the absence of defensive wounds on Ellen's hands and arms, claiming she would have injuries consistent with fighting off her attacker if there had been one. Meanwhile, Sam cooperates with the authorities at the scene and is eventually taken in handcuffs to be questioned at the station. It's not until hours later that Ellen's parents, Joshua and Sandra Greenberg, are notified of their only child's death. With the words, something terrible has happened to Ellie, the Greenberg's world came crashing down and would never be the same. Sandra told the Philadelphia Inquirer that life suddenly became weird, strange, and black. But here's the thing. When Ellen's parents finally hear the news, it's not Sam who tells them. Instead, it's Sam's father, Richard Goldberg. Strangely, Richard isn't the only member of Sam's family who becomes intertwined in Ellen's case in the days following her death. The other notable person is Sam's uncle, James C. Schwartzman a former prosecutor and the current president judge of the Pennsylvania Court of Judicial Discipline, who has been described as politically important. Let's take a minute to talk about James C. Schwartzman. Okay, we need to back up a little to explain this. For the record, the following information has been reported by Gavin Fitch, who works closely with the Greenberg family. It's alleged Sam called his cousin, Camian Schwartzman, 17 minutes prior to dialing 911. It's unclear if this was before or after he bulldozed his way inside the apartment because the Venice Lofts only has surveillance cameras at the main entrance. There aren't any in the hallway leading up to the apartment. Now, in regards to that call, Kamian didn't answer. However, Sam's uncle slash Kamian's dad, James C. Schwartzman, phoned Sam 12 minutes later at 6.26 p.m. The contents of that conversation aren't public. But whatever was said was enough to get both Kamian and James to the apartment quickly. Kamian arrived three minutes into Sam's conversation with the dispatcher, and even before EMS, while James got there prior to paramedics calling Ellen's time of death at 6.40. The two Schwartzmen stayed with Sam the entire time and even made sure he had an attorney present during the subsequent questioning. As for the reason behind James making the death notification instead of Sam, None of the resources give a clear reason as to why. We could speculate, but I'll leave that up to everyone else. What we do know is that this isn't the last time James C. Schwartzman is involved in Ellen's case. According to a sworn statement by Melissa Ware, the Venice Lofts apartment manager, James contacts her sometime the following day. He requests access to the apartment in order to collect personal belongings for Sam, most importantly, a suit for Ellen's upcoming funeral. Melissa's hesitant, though. She doesn't want to get herself or her boss in trouble for allowing someone to enter without permission and possibly risk the entire investigation. So she contacts the Philadelphia Police Department and asks if it's okay. They explain the crime scene has been released and give the go-ahead for James to enter and for the professional crime scene cleaning crew to get to work. Again, this doesn't feel right to Melissa. Unsure of what else to do, Melissa takes a video 
of the state of the apartment prior to James's arrival and the impending deep clean. When James finally gets to the apartment, he takes more than Sam's suit. Thomas Brennan, who I'll introduce more in depth later, alleges in its equivocal death analysis that James C. Schwartzman walks out of the apartment with cell phones, both of Ellen's laptops, one was for personal use and the other was for work, among other things. He eventually returns everything to the authorities days later when they acquire a search warrant, but by then it's too late. Everything James had in his possession is compromised because the chain of custody has been broken. Assistant medical examiner Dr. Marlon Osborne performs Ellen's autopsy early that same morning. The examination reveals a startling revelation. Bruises in various stages of healing cover Ellen's wrist, right arm, abdomen, and both legs, spurning questions about how or even who may have caused them in the days leading up to her death. The ME also uncovers a total of 20 stab wounds, labeling them with the letters A through T. There's a two and a half inch gash on her scalp, a three inch laceration on her stomach, a total of 10 punctures to the back of her neck, ranging from 0.2 centimeters to three inches deep, and eight more stab wounds to Ellen's chest, where the knife remained lodged long after her death. Even though the knife found embedded in Ellen only had her DNA on it, two of the wounds were inflicted after Ellen's heart stopped beating. We know this because the injuries didn't cause hemorrhaging, which is a result of the heart beating and moving the blood throughout the body. If her heart wasn't beating at the time of those stab wounds, it means she couldn't have done this to herself. As a result, Dr. Marlon Osborne rules Ellen's death a homicide. Unfortunately, that didn't stick for long. Here's what happened. Upon Dr. Osborne's ruling, Ellen's case is transferred to the Philadelphia Homicide Unit. The investigators review the crime scene, key fob records, and surveillance footage. They do so in order to match the information against the story Sam told them, and somehow everything lines up with his version of events. Or so they say. Then the investigative team examines Ellen's mental state in the days, weeks, and months leading up to her death, uncovering a relatively recent struggle with anxiety. Loved ones noticed a marked shift in Ellen's behavior two months prior to her death. She went from her usual vibrant and lively self to filled with anxiety and stress, according to some of her friends and coworkers. When Sandra and Joshua asked their daughter what was causing her anxiousness, she vaguely told them it was due to work and never went into more detail, giving them the impression she didn't want to continue talking about it. She did, however, express an interest in moving back to her childhood home in Harrisburg, where her parents live. The Greenbergs found this to be unusual because Ellen had built a life in Philadelphia. Her job, her friends, Sam... Not to fail to mention, Sam and Ellen were set to be married at the end of summer, a little less than eight months away, causing them to wonder, why would Ellen want to move when this beautiful new chapter in her life was about to begin? Was she running from something or someone? The concerned parents questioned her, wanting to know if everything was okay between her and Sam. Ellen dismissed the line of questioning and assured them that all was well with the young couple though this did little to assuage Josh and Sandra's concerns. Not sure what else to do, the Greenbergs urged Ellen to see a psychiatrist, and Ellen agreed. She attended three appointments prior to her death and never voiced thoughts of suicide or any encounters with domestic violence. When asked about her home life, the doctor noted a smile on Ellen's face as she spoke about her soon-to-be husband. Despite her anxiety, Ellen had a lot to look forward to. 
She was excited for her upcoming nuptials and even mailed save the dates four days prior to her death. The doctor took all of this into consideration and eventually diagnosed Ellen with severe anxiety. She was prescribed clonopin and Ambien, which lists suicidal ideation and behavior as possible side effects, both of which were also found in Ellen's system at the time of her death. With this information, the investigators feel confident in their assessment that Ellen's injuries were self-inflicted. Detectives even point to a small collection of shallow punctures on her body as further proof, calling them test or hesitation wounds. They then push back on Dr. Marlon Osborne's homicide ruling and encourage the case to be reclassified as a suicide in an unprecedented meeting that same day, January 27th. Gavin Fish reports the encounter involved two members of the Philadelphia Police Department, a representative of the district attorney's office, the chief medical examiner who is Dr. Osborne's boss, and Dr. Marlon Osborne himself. We can't underscore enough how bizarre this meeting was. Dr. Osborne would later testify under oath that except for this one instance in regards to Ellen's death, his ruling in a death has never been influenced the way it was on that day, January 27th, 2011. It gets sketchier. Remember earlier when I mentioned the Venice Lofts doorman, Phil Hanton, was with Sam as he forced his way inside the apartment? The police told Dr. Osborne that's how the discovery of Ellen's body played out. And this version of events heavily factored into the decision he was about to make. Here's the thing, though. Phil Hanton later signed an affidavit stating he did not accompany Sam to the apartment. And as the Philadelphia Inquirer reports, video surveillance corroborates his statement. Unfortunately, this startling information wouldn't come out for some time. And it seems the impromptu group meeting put so much pressure on the assistant medical examiner that he eventually fell in line, changing Ellen's manner of death from homicide to suicide. The decision devastated the Greenbergs. Since then, Joshua and Sandra have fought tooth and nail in the name of justice for Ellen. They know their precious daughter didn't commit suicide, but rather someone murdered her in cold blood. Unfortunately, just because the family knows this to be true doesn't mean those in power will believe them without evidence. They acquired a portion of Ellen's case folder through the Freedom of Information Act, gaining access to the ME's investigative report, the autopsy report, images of Ellen's wounds, and crime scene photos. Armed with this evidence, the Greenbergs have hired countless forensic experts to weigh in on the case over the years. These second, third, and fourth opinions all come to the same conclusion. Ellen didn't kill herself. Instead, they question the veracity of the Philadelphia Homicide Department's findings. The first example of this is Dr. Wecht, the Pittsburgh forensic pathologist who is most known for calling into question the plausibility of the single bullet theory attributed to JFK's assassination. The injuries to the back of Ellen's neck particularly interested Dr. Wecht who claims to have never seen anything like this in all his years of practice and can't comprehend how investigators wrote off Ellen's death as a suicide. Upon the release of his January 2012 report, the renowned forensic pathologist classified it as strongly suspicious of homiciding, thus validating the family's gut feeling and propelling them forward. From there, the distraught parents officially hired Larry Kasner as their private attorney. Kasner has made a name for himself as a civil rights lawyer, unafraid of facing off with the police in pursuit of justice. And he soon proved to be up to the task in Ellen's case too. 
The first order of business took place in May 2012, after months of preparation. He represented the Greenbergs in a much-anticipated meeting with the Philadelphia police officials and members of the district attorney's office with one goal in mind, to get Ellen's case reopened. But that didn't happen, or else the family's fight for justice may have ended long ago. Instead, the argument fell on deaf ears, forcing Joshua and Sandra Greenberg to find another approach. New legal counsel soon joined the team in the form of former state attorney general Walter Cohen. Under his direction, they filed a public records request for the entire police case file on Ellen's death. They were quickly denied. Cohen proved his tenacity as he pushed and pushed the department, and it worked to an extent. Investigators allowed the Greenbergs to view the file under strict guidelines. No photocopies or photographs of the file's contents. And this proved to be another roadblock for the couple as they didn't know what they should be looking for. But Ellen's mom and dad pressed forward still. They sought out other forensic experts to study what they did have. The crime scene and wound photos, the autopsy findings, and the medical examiner's investigative report. This time, they had someone with 25 years of investigative experience on their side, Thomas Brennan, a retired police veteran and former chief of the Dauphin County Detectives. And he was on the case for free. He studied every single photo and document available to the family and ultimately came to the conclusion that Ellen's lack of defensive wounds didn't necessarily point to no attacker. He referenced his own experience on other cases where victims couldn't react fast enough in what's called a blitz attack. It's when a victim is attacked by surprise or with such overpowering force that they're incapacitated before they can defend themselves. That's not all, though. Brennan noticed other inconsistencies, including one that comes in the form of a streak of dried blood that had dripped from Ellen's nose across her cheek to her left ear, indicating she was on her side when she died. This directly contradicts crime scene photos, which show Ellen propped up in a seated position against the lower kitchen cabinets, and investigators who continue to insist she wasn't moved. If that's the case, the blood path defies gravity, as former homicide prosecutor Guy DeAndre told the Philadelphia Inquirer. He elaborated, saying, you don't need to be a pathologist to have an appreciation for that. Either she moved herself or someone moved her. DeAndre continued examining the available documents in Ellen's case and unraveled the tangle web even more. He questioned what damage the 10 stab wounds to Ellen's neck may have caused to the spinal cord and began looking for the neuropathologist's report, only to find a single line referencing it in the autopsy report. It reads, note, Neuropathologist Lucy Rourke examined the spinal cord and concluded there is no defect of the spinal cord. Wanting a closer look, DeAndre requested a copy only to be told there was no evidence of a neuropathology report and an invoice couldn't be found either. When asked about her findings, Dr. Rourke couldn't be certain she saw the specimen without an invoice, stating she had no recollection of the case. The family and their investigative team kept pushing for answers when a twist of fate gave them something better than a years-old report, Ellen's spinal cord. It turns out the medical examiner's office still had a section of it in storage, which was then examined by forensic pathologist Wayne K. Ross. The subsequent report indicated that the cranial nerves and brain had been severed by one of the knife wounds, leading Ross to determine Ellen wouldn't have been physically able to continue the knife assault on herself. He writes, quote, as a result, she would experience severe pain and impaired slash loss of consciousness, end quote. 
So if the injuries to the back of her neck were enough to incapacitate Ellen, how did she deliver the final stabbings to her chest where the knife ended up? Despite the ample evidence to the contrary, the Philadelphia Police Department stands by the ruling of Ellen's death as a suicide. They remain steadfast in their findings and point to now-debunked evidence concerning Ellen's computer and Google searches for a quick, painless suicide prior to her death. However, no such searches were found when the FBI examined the computer in 2011 or when the family hired their own experts to do the same. I also think anyone would agree. 20 stab wounds to the chest, neck, and body are anything but painless. Now that Greenberg's primary focus is to get a hold of Ellen's entire case file, a request that doesn't seem likely. The last two years have kept the Greenbergs busy with two major lawsuits, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. In 2021, Joshua and Sandra Greenberg, through their most recent attorney, Joe Pedraza, filed a civil lawsuit against Dr. Marlon Osborne, who conducted Ellen's autopsy. The determined parents want Ellen's manner of death to be changed back to homicide, or even undetermined so that her death can continue to be investigated. If this happens, an investigation into the city of Philadelphia will also be opened for misconduct. The presiding judge, Glynis D. Hill, allowed the suit to move forward, which prompted an appeal filed by the city arguing that a medical examiner's opinion can't be challenged under the law. Then in October 2022, the Greenbergs filed another civil suit, this time against specific individuals from the medical examiner's office, the Philadelphia Police Department, and the district attorney's office for concealment of a homicide. As of this recording, the lawsuit is still ongoing. Finally, the most recent update happened in time for the 12th anniversary of Ellen's death. Her case will be reviewed by what her family calls a fresh set of eyes at the Chester County DA's office. Ellen may be gone, but she won't be forgotten. Share her story, her name, her photo, because the more people talking about her, the more it helps Ellen's loved ones in their fight for justice. Here at the Murder Diaries, we're thinking of the Greenberg family today and always. They've fought and continue to fight so hard. May 2023 be the year of answers. Give us a follow at the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram. And you can find us at the Murder Diaries Pod request at gmail.com. Until then, stay safe. Bye. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.